Got me on blue. Good morning. Can you hear me now? Good to see you. Uh, thank you for being here. I am excited. Today is a little bit different day. Not only do we get to welcome Brother Grant for his first official day, which we are very excited about. Thank you, Brother Grant, for welcoming us as we came in this morning. Uh, but also today we have a good friend of mine who's going to be uh, sharing God's word with us today. Uh, Brother Justin Davis is a fellow pastor. Uh, that I've gotten to know very well. He's been in this area about a year and a half, and, uh, and so they've kind of gotten settled here in Lincoln County a bit, and uh, I've been able to sit down and have meals with him and discuss God's Word with him many times to be encouraged greatly by him, and so I'm thankful for his faithfulness to God's Word. I'm thankful for his, he and his wife's willingness to come and be with us this morning. So uh, at this time, I'm going to ask Justin if you would come and uh, share God's Word with us, brother. As he's coming, if y'all would, I'd like for you to join me as we pray and ask God's blessing over this time and over Brother Justin as he comes. Father God, I do thank you. I thank you for this brother, Lord, for his commitment to you and his commitment to your word. Father, for his love for the gospel. Lord, I'm thankful for how you've used Justin to encourage me, Lord, how we have sat in a for hours and hours and many conversations, Lord, and he has challenged me and stretched me. Father, I thank you for his, Lord, for the, the understanding of the depths of your mercy. Father, that no matter how unworthy we are, Lord, that you are a God who has done all that needs to be done to redeem us from our sins. Father, thank you for his willingness to come and to be with us at Mount Zion today, Father. I thank you for the time he's already spent in preparation to be ready, Lord, even on a very different week this week. So, Lord, I pray now that you would allow him to have clarity of his thoughts, Lord, that you would be with his mouth as he speaks, Lord, that you would allow him to share all the things that you would have him share, Father, and that you and your spirit would come to convict us of our need from these things. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Well, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Exodus, chapter 34. Exodus, chapter 34. And as you're turning, I want to thank you, church, and Pastor Zach, for the invitation to come today and the opportunity to preach to you the gospel of Jesus Christ, which we share in together. As we consider the gospel together this morning, I want to kind of get our minds thinking similarly. I want you to know why I chose to preach this particular passage of Scripture this morning. And that's because in these verses, uh, uh, the book of Exodus actually creates for us somewhat of a, a conundrum, a theological dilemma of sorts. And as we walk through this text together this morning and try to untangle this knotty theological problem created by this text, I hope that we will all together grow in our understanding of and appreciation for the gospel of Jesus Christ. So if you found your place in Exodus 34, let's begin reading in verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, cut two stone tablets like the first ones, and I will write on them the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be prepared by morning. Come up Mount Sinai in the morning and stand before me on the mountaintop. No one may go up with you. In fact, no one should be seen anywhere on the mountain. Even the flocks and herds are not to graze in front of that mountain. Moses cut two stone tablets like the first ones. 
He got up early in the morning, and taking the two stone tablets in his hand, he climbed Mount Sinai, just as the Lord had commanded him. The Lord came down in a cloud, stood with him there, and proclaimed his name, the Lord. The Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed, the Lord. The Lord is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin. But he will not leave the guilty unpunished, bringing the father's iniquity on the children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. Moses immediately knelt low on the ground and worshiped. May God bless the reading and preaching of his word. For a long time, the question that I believed that Southern Baptists and all evangelical Christians, for that matter, needed to revisit and wrestle with was this. What is the gospel? And don't get me wrong, I think that Southern Baptists and evangelicals need to wrestle with that question again to revisit and, and make sure that we truly understand what is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because I'm afraid that in an effort to simplify the message, we've actually reduced the gospel to the point where it's no longer a gospel at all. Because you see, the gospel message is this. It's the message about how guilty sinners can be reconciled to a holy God by repenting of sin and faith in the atoning death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And to reduce it any further than that is to make it no gospel at all. I'm thankful that you have a pastor here who will preach to you the true biblical gospel of Jesus Christ. But I fear that whether in our minds or even with our words, we've actually stopped talking about the gospel in biblical terms. We've all but omitted God's holiness and his wrath and his justice. We've stopped talking about men as sinners and rebels against this holy God. We've stopped talking about Christ and his substitutionary atonement on the cross of Calvary. And we've certainly omitted repentance and biblical faith as requirements for salvation. Somewhere along the way, we've uh, misunderstood what is the gospel of Jesus Christ. But I've actually come to realize that the question that we need to revisit is not what is the gospel, but why the gospel of Jesus Christ? What is the conditions that made the gospel of Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ necessary in the first place? We've somehow left out the condition of men as rebels against God that need to be reconciled back to him. And so these verses here in Exodus 34 bring afresh to our minds the conditions that made the gospel of Jesus Christ and his death on the cross of Calvary and his subsequent resurrection from the dead necessary for God to save sinners. And so as we consider this text this morning, there are two things that I really want us to see from this text. And they're these, the, the character of God and, and the guilt of all mankind. And as we look at those two things and we understand the character and holiness of God, and as we understand the guilt of all mankind, what I'm going to try to do is draw a stark of contrast as possible between these two things so that we can see together that these two things, the character and holiness of God and the guilt of all mankind, can only be reconciled in and through the cross of Jesus Christ. So let's consider first the character of God. Look with me again at verse 6. It's the Lord. He passed in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, 
and sin. We'll stop there at the first half of verse 7. And so as we look at these verses, it's important for us to understand a little bit about what's happening leading up to this text in the book of Exodus. We all know the, the story of the book of Exodus. God delivers the people of Israel out of Egyptian bondage. He leads them across the Red Sea on dry ground. And when they get to the other side, Moses is called up Mount Sinai to receive the law, to receive the ten words from God. And before he even makes it back down the mountain, the people of Israel have already broken the first, second, and third commandments at least because they have crafted themselves a golden idol and worshipped it in the place of God. And so now Moses is going back up the mountain after he throws the tablets on the ground. He breaks them, symbolizing the breaking of the covenant already. Moses is now going back up the mountain and God is going to give the Ten Commandments to him a second time to reinstitute, to, to bring back this covenant that God has made with his people. And God comes down, stands before Moses and proclaims his name and proclaims his character. And so what I want us to see first from this text, in order for us to understand the character of God, we actually need to go to the right source, and that is God himself. You see, there's a lot of terrible ideas out there about who God is, and, and people like to repeat those kinds of things. But to know God truly, it can't be just what I've always heard or even how I like to think about God, but we must go to God himself. It is the Lord who has condescended, come down on the mountain and proclaimed his name and proclaimed his character to Moses. So if we want to know God, we must go to God himself as he has revealed himself in his word. But if also if we're going to understand the character of God, we also need to understand that all revelation of God is actually God condescending to reveal himself to us. What I mean by condescending is it is actually God stooping to reveal himself to us. Think about in Exodus chapter 33. If you were to read the chapter just prior to this, Moses tells, he asked God, God, show me your glory. And God tells Moses, Moses, no man can see my face and live. But I'll put you in the cleft of the rock, put my hand over you and pass by and you'll see my hind parts or my backside. And in that way, you will see a glimpse of my glory in doing this. It is God saying that, Moses, you can't know me fully. You cannot see all that I am. You can only see a glimpse, a, 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 a glimmer of my glory. We sang about this morning, Isaiah chapter 6, and Isaiah standing before the Lord, seeing the throne of God high and lifted up. And how does he describe God? He says, the train of his robe or the hem of his garment filled the temple. And that is the only description that he gives of God. Why? Because Isaiah says, I've seen this grand vision of God and, and the, the glory that I can have words to describe stops at his garment. Something similar happens actually in the book of Exodus in chapter 24. Uh, they see this vision of God and the description of God in Exodus chapter 24 actually stops at the pavement. It says the pavement was as sapphires, as clear as the sky. There are no words to describe this glorious grand God that we are learning about this morning. And yet... He has condescended, stooped himself low to reveal himself to us. And so we can know God truly, but we cannot fully know him. Brothers and sisters, in our endeavors to know God, we are as ants exploring Mount Everest. We can know truths about God, but we will never explore and mine the depths of the riches of God's character. 
But as we consider the character of God, I want you to see that He is holy and His presence is holy. Think about this in verse 3. It says, no one may go up with you. In fact, no one should be seen anywhere on the mountain. Even the flocks and herds are not to graze in front of that mountain. You see, here we have God condescending to reveal his law. He reestablishes the covenant of Israel. And as Moses is going up, just as he told him the first time in Exodus chapter 19, he says, Moses, you alone are to go up the mountain. No one else can be even close to this mountain. Why? Because the holiness of God, his glory would kill them dead on the spot. Even the animals uh, would be killed by God's glory. That's what it tells us in Exodus 19, because God's presence is so holy. He cannot tolerate one speck of sin in his presence. That's why God reveals the law of Moses uh, on the top of a mountain to communicate transcendence, God's greatness. He's on top of a mountain. They're at the very bottom, but they can't even approach that mountain because God is so distinct, so different, so pure, and so holy. Consider again the words of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6. He sees the Lord high and lifted up, and, and the angels are crying, holy, holy, holy. And what's the first words that Isaiah says after beholding this grand vision of God? Woe is me, for I am ruined for I am a man of unclean lips. Why does he say, woe is me? It's his, I see God's glory and he recognizes, I don't belong here. I'm out of place in the presence of God. All of this shows us this great creator, creature distinction. The character of God is pure and holy. Yes, we are made in his image, but he is altogether different than we are. When we talk about God, we're not talking about someone like us, just bigger we're talking about someone in an entirely different category than we are. He is holy, holy, holy. But not only is his presence holy, his name is holy. But the time would not permit for me to elaborate at length about the greatness of his name. But he reveals his name as the Lord. Or as we read in Exodus chapter 3, I am who I am. Or perhaps it could be translated, I cause to be who I cause to be. And, and this shows us that God is self-existent and independent. This shows us that God is creator and sustainer of all things. It shows us that he is unchangeable and completely reliable in everything that he does. And that he is eternal in his existence. God has always been and he will always be. He is the I am who I am. He's holy in his name. But then as we get further in this text, we see the holiness of his attributes. He says that he's a compassionate God, that he has genuine, tender care towards human beings and that he holds them in an attitude of concern and mercy. We sang about his mercy this morning, didn't we? He's gracious. He, he, he cares in a, in a way for his people that he, they do not deserve. He shows them genuine, true, kind favor towards his people, a favor in which they're not necessarily worthy. He's slow to anger, showing patience when his people's behavior is less than satisfactory. And he's abounding in faithful love. Now, this love is not a, a fickle love based on emotion, but it is a covenant love. It's a covenant loyalty and it's abounding. It's great. It's not lacking in any ways. He shows a steadfast commitment to his people. Tell me, how many people do you know that get married because they say they love each other but end up divorced just a year or so later? What they had for one another was not love. It was lust. Lust asks what you can do for me. 
Love says, what can I do for you? It's a covenant commitment to the other person. And God's love is pure and abounding. He's committed to his people in spite of who they are. He's abounding in love. And it says he's abounding in truth. Every word that he speaks is utterly reliable. These are the attributes of God that make him holy. But then he says that he puts those attributes in action, maintaining a faithful love to a thousand generations. You see, Israel had already broken the covenant. They'd made the golden calf and bowed down and worship it, breaking the covenant that God had made with them. And yet, in spite of this, he says he is faithful to them in spite of who they were. He has maintained faithful love uh, to a thousand generations. In this way, God is not like us. And then he says he forgives iniquity, rebellion, and sin. Now, this is just another way of God saying, I forgive all kinds of sin. This threefold repetition of different things as God says, I forgive all kinds of sin. And this is good news for us. Because God is a forgiving God. And, and not as, he's just a forgiving God reluctantly. But God's nature is one of a disposition to forgive. God is, by who He is, a forgiving God. Dear brothers and sisters, I ask you this morning, heaven, behold the glory of God in this text. Are you not in awe of who God is this morning? Have you not seen His majesty and His perfections? Are you not awestruck by who He is? Brothers and sisters, He is the holy, holy, holy Creator God of the universe who is so perfect and pure that He cannot tolerate sin at all. He is so magnificent and glorious that to look upon His face would kill us in an instant. This is the God that we have gathered here to worship this morning. Oh, might we be like Moses and fall on our faces, kneel low and worship him. But isn't it wonderful that this God who is so great that to speak of him this morning, I've not even scratched the surface of who he is, has condescended to reveal himself to lowly creatures as us. Oh, how worthy of worship he is. But I say all of this about the character of God because this is an essential component of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If we don't really understand who God is, we can't make sense of the gospel because the gospel is necessary not just because of who we are as sinners, but the gospel is necessary because of who God is. If God is like us, if God is sinful in any way, then we don't need the gospel but God is pure and perfect and holy. Therefore, we need Jesus to redeem us. God is holy. But now we arrive at the problem, you see. For in order for us to understand the gospel of Jesus Christ, we also need to understand the guilt of all mankind. Because that's what the second half of verse 7 says. It says, but, but he will not leave the guilty unpunished bringing the father's iniquity on the children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. You see, up until this point, we've uh, seen some wonderful attributes of God. But there is one other attribute of God here as he reveals that he cannot leave the guilty unpunished. There's actually another attribute of God that is revealed to us, and that is his justice. You see, God is loving and he is kind and he is gracious and he is forgiving and, and he is all of these things. But God is also just and we have to make sense of all of these attributes together because God does not forgive at the expense of his own character and name. That would just be God sweeping sin under the rug. That would be God overlooking sin. But because God is just, he cannot just let us 
off the hook. He cannot leave the guilty unpunished. And here is that apparent theological contradiction that I talked about. This is the, the problem that we have to untangle. How can God be both forgiving and not leave the guilty unpunished? How can God forgive sin and yet punish with perfect justice every sin that has ever been committed? Dear brothers and sisters, that is the heart of of the Bible. That is the grand narrative of Scripture. That's what all of Scripture is trying to communicate to us is the answer to that question. And I hope that every person in this room wants to know the answer because every one of us are in this category over here, guilty and deserving of the punishment of God. You see, let me correct something of a, an error that I often hear people say. Perhaps someone here has said this before. There's no such thing as a good person. The Bible tells us in Romans 3, verses 10 through 12, as it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. All alike have become worthless. There is no one who does what is good, not even one. Now, you may have come here this morning thinking to yourself, I'm a pretty good person. I'm not that bad. Yeah, I make some mistakes here and there, but overall, I'm a pretty good person. There's certainly, uh, this is popular to say, there's certainly people out there way worse than I am. But my encouragement to you this morning would be to stop comparing yourself to other sinners to make yourself feel better, but actually to start comparing yourself to the perfect law of God as he has revealed himself in his word. There are many, many good old boys and good old gals who will be in hell for all eternity who thought themselves to be good people but will endure the wrath of God because they were sinners. Dear friends, there are many people with their names on Southern Baptist church rolls who will be in hell who thought themselves to be good people but were not. We are not good people. We are evil people who are deserving of God's wrath and yet He shows us mercy in the cross of Jesus Christ. We are lawbreakers, sinners, criminals before God and worthy of his wrath. It's not just the people here in Exodus 34, nor is it their children. We all are sinners. As it says here that, uh, that God brings the father's iniquity on the children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. Now, now, what this has in view is not innocent children being punished for the sins of their fathers. That's not what Exodus has in view here. What Moses has in view here in writing the book of Exodus is actually children who commit their father's sins and are just as guilty as their fathers. It's not innocent children, but guilty children who are guilty of the same sins of their father. Never is the old adage more true, like father, like son. Never is that adage more true than in the inheritance of sin from our forefathers. It was passed down from Adam generation to generation, and every one of us has inherited a sin nature from our parents. We learn sin from our parents, and we suffer from sin because we sin the sins of our parents. You see, in that way, sin is a little bit like a contag contagious disease. If one of you catch, you know, COVID or something like that, you're going to suffer because you have COVID. Your children do not suffer because you have COVID. Your children are going to suffer because they caught it from you. And then they suffer because they also have COVID. Sin is the same way. It's inherited. And we are all personally guilty. Time does not permit this morning for us to walk through the law of God. But if you were to go back to Exodus 20 and walk through the Ten Commandments of God and compare yourself not to other sinners, but to the law of God, you would find that you are an idolater, 
uh, a blasphemer, a, a one who dishonors their parents, a murderer at heart, adulterers at heart, thieves, liars, and coveters. That is who we are by nature, and that is who we are indeed. We are evil, morally corrupt, dead in our trespasses and sins. And we will answer for every single transgression of the law of God on the last day because we are accountable to him. Now, I've said none of this this morning to hurt anyone, but I've said all of this because each of us, if you're not in Christ this morning, you are desperately in need of the forgiveness of God. And all that awaits you is justice if you are outside of Christ. You see, only a hungry man rejoices over food. Only a blind man rejoices at the gift of sight. Only a sick man rejoices at the thought of an antidote. And what I'm trying to show you this morning is that only a guilty man rejoices at the thought of forgiveness. You see, here, so here's the situation in Psalm. God is just and we are guilty. God is holy and we are not. So again, the question, how can God be forgiving and also be the just God of the universe? He cannot just overlook our sin. That would not be justice. Imagine with me for a moment, a bank robber who shot a guard stands before a judge and the judge says, well, you're guilty of this, but you promise that you're going to do good deeds the rest of your life. So I'm going to forgive you and let you go. Now, you tell me the guard who got shot and his family, uh, what are they going to say to that judge? Are they going to say that that judge is just or is he unjust? Of course, they're going to say that he is unjust. Is it not the job of a judge to do justice? How much more then should the holy judge of all the universe do justice? We are guilty before a holy God. So what is the difference between the person who is in the category of forgiveness and the category of justice? Well, if we were to go through the Old Testament, we would find that these verses are used over and over again to show that repentance is the heart of the matter. They're used in Joel where Joel says this. Even now, this is the Lord's declaration. Turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, weeping and mourning. Tear your hearts, not just your clothes, and return to the Lord your God. Why? For he is a gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love, and he relents from sending disaster. Joel says, repent of your sin and turn to God because he is gracious. So repentance is one aspect of this. However, it's not just repentance. For the Bible is progressive in its revelation and the New Testament reveals to us more about how to resolve this tension created here in Exodus chapter 34. For we see in the picture of the New Testament that it is in and through Christ Jesus that we have forgiveness of sins, real forgiveness of sins. I want to read to you some verses from the book of Romans. And in fact, you might even want to turn there yourselves. In Romans 3 verse 23, we read this. For all have sinned. And fall short of the glory of God. They are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God presented him as an atoning sacrifice in his blood. Received through faith to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in his constraint God passed over the sins previously committed. Now listen to verse 26. God presented him to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that he would be righteous and declare righteous the one who has faith in Jesus. 
You see, here the Apostle Paul reaffirms this truth that I've been reiterating, that we are all guilty before God. But he says men can be justified, declared righteous before a holy God. Why? Through faith in Christ Jesus, through belief and trust in Him. And not only can we be declared righteous, but God also maintains His justice. Remember, God cannot forgive sins in a way that is inconsistent with His character. Forgiveness is only through Christ, because through Christ... Sin is rightly punished. This is the plan of God before the foundation of the world to save sinners. That Jesus, the God, the second person of the Godhead, would come in the flesh and dwell among men. And he would live a perfect life before us. Now, everyone in this room probably would affirm the truth that Jesus lived a perfect life. But let me tell you what that really means, that Jesus lived a perfect life. You remember those Ten Commandments that we kind of walked through briefly just a few moments ago that we are guilty of breaking? Jesus kept them his entire life. And, and I didn't quote it to you earlier, but Deuteronomy 6, 5 sum, summarizes the law like this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. There has not been one moment of any person in this entire room, not one moment of their entire lives that we have loved the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our might, with all our soul and with all our strength. There's not been one moment. But in the life of Jesus, there was not one moment that he did it. Can you imagine being that perfect? That for all of his life, from birth until his death on the cross, crying, it is finished. He loved the Lord his God with all of his heart, with all of his soul, and with all of his strength. He was perfect. All we have ever been were covenant breakers. And Jesus is the one covenant keeper. And he died on the cross of Calvary to take our sins upon himself and impute to us his righteousness. You see, that's why Jesus had to live a perfect life. To be the spotless lamb, yes. But also to store up a wealth of righteousness to attribute to us, to impute to us. And so when he is handed up to sinful men and delivered to the cross of Calvary to die on the cross, there's this great exchange that's happening. All of our sins on the shoulders of Jesus and all of his righteousness on us. That's what it means for Jesus to become sin on the cross. That's what we're told in 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. On the cross of Calvary, God the Father looked on his own son the way he should have looked on us. So that God the Father can look on us the way he should have looked on his own perfect son who loved him with all of his heart, with all of his soul, and with all of his strength. That is what happened at the cross of Calvary. That is why God can justify and maintain his justice. You see, on the cross of Calvary, it's not just Jesus being beaten up for us. Yes, he endured whips and spitting and the crown of thorns, and he endured being nailed to the cross and hanging on the tree. Yes, Jesus shed blood happened for us, but there's more that happened on the cross of Calvary than can be depicted in the passion of the Christ. On the cross of Calvary, Jesus hung suspended between heaven and earth and endured the wrath of God for us. He endured hell on earth for us so that we would not have to endure the wrath of God. And so he cries out, it is finished. 
Atonement has been made. Sins have been paid for. And the very one who was sinned against from all eternity was the one who paid for the sins himself. God in the flesh, the Lord Jesus. Oh, what a wonderful picture is the cross. And so, dear Christian, this is the gospel that we rest in. Brothers and sisters, there are so many Christians that struggle and wrestle with doubt about their own salvation. And, and I think the reason is, is because they understand justification by faith alone. But they don't understand that salvation is a free gift of God received by faith. But somehow we think in our twisted minds that we have to work to keep it. Dear friends, Jesus endured the wrath of God so that you will never endure the wrath of God. If you are in Christ, you will always be in Christ. You can have real assurance of salvation this morning because God is holy and he is just. And if you are in Christ, your sins have been forgiven and cast as far as the east is from the west. You can have real assurance. But the best place for us to start in response to this text is to bow low and worship. That what we've just talked about this morning, the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man bridged in the cross of Calvary is the one reason that we're here this morning. There are people from all different backgrounds and different walks of life and, and that maybe have nothing in common this morning. But that one thing and that is enough. And so we come together and we sing and we come together and listen to the word preached because we are in Christ. Brothers and sisters, when you come here, this is not some fickle thing to do, but we should bow low because God has redeemed us. But perhaps you're here this morning and you've never heard this or perhaps you're here this morning and never really understood this. Your only response this morning, if you are not in Christ, which should be to flee the wrath to come and to look to Christ, to receive him by faith. Do not continue trying to work to earn your salvation. Do not think on the last day that God will weigh your good deeds versus your bad. Uh, there, there's, that's not going to happen. Even if you do all the good things in the world, that will never outweigh your sin. Let's think about the analogy of the judge for a moment. Imagine the man who robbed the bank and shot the guard on the way out says, Judge, I promise I'll do good the rest of my life. He says, so you should. You're still guilty of the sin that you've committed. You're going to jail. God does not weigh good deeds against bad. He only looks at your evil, your transgression. That's who you are. And you will stand before God in judgment. And the question I ask you this morning is, will you stand before God in the filthy rags of your sin? Or will you stand before God clothed in the righteousness of Jesus imputed to you at the cross of Calvary? The Bible says anyone who repents of their sin turns away from the iniquity that they have committed and trusts in Jesus Christ. Put their faith in him. Not just believe that Jesus was and that he died on the cross and that he rose from the dead. Yes, you must believe those things. But actually trust that to secure for you a right standing before God. If you're not trusting in Jesus, you're like a man who's about to jump out of a plane without a parachute and flap his arms on the way down. I would say to you, trust the parachute. And so the Bible calls us to trust in Jesus Christ, to put our faith in him that we on the last day will stand before God and not endure his wrath, but receive his love and forgiveness because Jesus was enough. Dear friend, that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. 
Lord God, we come before you this morning thanking you for your word. Thanking you that though we guilty sinners stand before you unworthy, you see us as righteous because Christ is righteous. And Christ has taken our sins upon him on the cross. Lord, I thank you that you are just, but also that you are the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ Jesus. So Lord, help us this morning to rejoice in this good news. I pray for the one who has not yet received this good news, Lord, that your spirit would give them new life. Give them eyes of faith to receive Christ this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.